This is historian Rick Ryman on the Landis claim. Paul Landis, a Secret Service agent who accompanied President John F. Kennedy on his fateful motorcade through Dallas on November 22, 1963, has written a book that has thrown assassination aficionados in quite a tizzy. Now 88, Landis was just 28 when he rode on the side of the Queen Mary Secret Service automobile behind the presidential vehicle in Dallas, heard shots fired at the president, and witnessed the frenzied aftermath as the motorcade sped to Parkland Hospital for its sad denouement. Landis has been interviewed several times in the last 20 years, but at no time in the 60 years since Dallas has he told the story that he unspools in the book to be published next month. He was interviewed by the Sixth Floor Museum in 2010, and in that video interview, he declared in measured tones and with an air of complete certainty that he heard three shots, which matched the memories of more than two-thirds of the many ear witnesses watching the motorcade in the proximity of the Texas School Book Depository. This contradicts his original statement in 1963 that he heard two shots. In this new book, he returns to the original recollection of two shots. He decouples Kennedy's first wound from the shot that is also supposed to have caused all the wounds of Texas Governor John Connolly, implying that Kennedy's neck wound and Connolly's injuries were caused by separate bullets fired at almost exactly the same time. Having heard these two shots as one shot, he now says he heard only one more, the shot that subsequently struck Kennedy in the head. Landis explains that this reasoning is based on an extraordinary experience that day that he alone encountered and then kept to himself for nearly 60 years. He writes that when he arrived at Parkland and helped Mrs. Kennedy out of the presidential vehicle, he saw a whole bullet wedged in the tufted lining of the seat back against which Kennedy had sat. He extracted it without anyone noticing and put it in his pocket. Instead of disclosing this vital evidence, he simply placed it on the president's operating table, expecting it to be found later. He surmised that somehow JFK's body and the bullet was replaced on a stretcher, which was then placed alongside Connolly's, and somehow the bullet was jiggled from the first gurney to Connolly's stretcher, where it was found later by a hospital employee. Ergo, Landis's bullet was the whole bullet, later called by conspiracists, a magic bullet, after the Warren Commission and others maintained that it was the shot that caused JFK's first injury and those of the governor. So much, we are asked to believe, for the single bullet theory. Much of what Landis writes strains credulity. Partly this is because of what we know about how Landis spent his time in the 12 hours before the assassination. The Warren Commission knew that the Secret Service agents spent much of the night at Fort Worth nightclubs. Landis was one of the agents who got the least amount of sleep. He left a night spot at 5 o'clock a.m., and got less than two hours of sleep. 
The Warren Report devoted many pages to this irresponsible behavior and severely criticized the Secret Service in its report. Ignorance of the Secret Service's dereliction of duty is not something that can be attributed to the Warren Report. Landis claims that he did not drink alcoholic drinks that night. Be that as it may, he could only have been severely impaired later the next morning. Combined with the shock of the assassination, the grogginess of the agent would likely have made anyone mixed up about what he saw in the less than 15 minutes between the beginning of the assassination and his arrival at Parkland Hospital behind the president's bloodied car. The residue of guilt could easily have led to a case of PTSD for the agents, especially one as young as Landis, as it did for Clint Hill, the agent nearest to the president. Landis had nightmares for decades, and it is possible that he imagined picking up bullets and doing other things that, over time, became difficult to distinguish from his memory of what actually happened. More importantly, perhaps, there is simply no possibility of corroborating the more sensational of his accusations. Nobody is likely to back him up with testimony that they observed the same thing as he. While this does not make his story false, it equally makes it difficult to consider it persuasive. What we do know of events at Parkland, though, makes his allegations seem highly suspect. A nearly whole bullet was found rolling off John Connolly's stretcher minutes after the president had died. Landis claims that this was the end of the trail for the bullet that he found in the car. Landis said that he put it on the operating table where Kennedy was lying, while doctors around the same table were fighting to save JFK's life. The bullet that became known as the magic bullet, that is, the bullet from the Connolly stretcher, had not yet been found. According to Landis, the bullet must have traveled with the president's body lying on sheets when the body and sheets were transferred back to the stretcher and then somehow been placed alongside Connolly's stretcher, which then must have been bumped or jiggled from one to another. Not only is this a series of speculations piled on other speculations, but we know that JFK was never placed on an operating table. He never left the stretcher on which he was placed until after the Parkland doctors had failed to save his life and everyone was shooed from the operating room. Landis was charged with guarding Mrs. Kennedy. He claims he was behind her when she entered the operating room and turned after clearing the door. At that point, he said, that a crush of people behind him pushed him into the room and swept him all the way up to the operating table, which did not exist, where he was practically at Kennedy's feet. He then placed the bullet he found on the table by the feet. One problem is that no one remembers seeing Landis in the room at all. Another is the idea that with doctors surrounding the stretcher, no one would think it askance that an unsanitized Secret Service agent was among them, 
or that they would not have noticed him putting something on the stretcher. No one has ever said that the many people in the room were ever pushed to the point that they were virtually on top of the stretcher and the doctors working there. The doctors were dismayed that many people who would not ordinarily be in an operating theater were there, Mrs. Kennedy not least among them. But Landis virtually describes a situation in which people were on the verge of being pressed to death. No one describes such a scene. Gerald Posner is willing to believe that Landis may have discovered the bullet that later rolled off of Connolly's stretcher, but he does not believe that this explanation of where the bullet came from following the assassination impedes the single bullet theory. I will go farther and say that there is simply no reason to believe that Landis ever discovered a whole bullet in the presidential limousine, or that the single bullet theory has been impeached in any way. As I said, in order to believe an allegation, there must be some corroboration of which there is none so far. But the other problem is that it is logically impossible as I will now show. I will examine the impossibilities of some of Landis's critical claims and inferences regarding his alleged finding of a whole bullet on JFK's seat, then pocketing it before placing it on the president's hospital gurney. As the most investigated crime in history, the JFK assassination contains more known facts than almost any conceivable criminal case. Within this case, the trajectory and autopsy evidence of the wounds of JFK and Governor Connolly represent a Russian doll analog of a hyper-complexity within the larger tangled assassination controversy. Whoever would challenge the single-bullet theory must confront, account for, and explain away any demonstrated fact in this rich motherload of evidence that contradicts the scenario that Landis claims. Landis, I suspect, does not do this in his book. But disregarding the scaffolding of the single bullet theory does not make it go away. Nor does it lessen the power of such evidence to reveal the logical impossibility of claims such as those made here. Forensic and ballistic evidence accumulated over the six decades retrospectively demonstrate the impossibility of Landis's claim to have found a bullet wedged in Kennedy's back seat. Even one such item of evidence is sufficient to disprove it, but there are many absurdities. First, it is not clear how a bullet could simply pop out of a wound that traveled some distance inside a body. That is absurdity one. Second, if a bullet did penetrate JFK's back and somehow reversed course, popped out, which is itself unbelievable, it would have lodged inside Kennedy's shirt and perhaps fallen to his waist, lodged there between his shirt and body. Surely it could not have reversed course and found a way to exit the small perforation it made in the shirt on the way in. 
That is absurdity too. Then there is the inconvenient truth, for Landis, that the neck wound had a corresponding exit wound in JFK's throat. Dr. Malcolm Perry at Parkland Hospital, who performed a tracheotomy on Kennedy's neck, reported that a wound of entrance or exit already existed in the throat when he obliterated it to perform the tracheotomy. The doctors at Bethesda Hospital, upon hearing this, judged that this throat wound was the wound of exit for the bullet that hit the upper back. The Warren Commission lined up these two wounds and surveyed a trajectory backward from the throat wound to the back wound and then to the sixth floor window, where FBI agent Robert Frazier was perched viewing the car through Oswald's scope. The trajectory represented a perfect cone with just one center, the sixth floor window. The angle of trajectory from that window that was measured when the car reached a point in which the stand-in for Connolly was directly obscured from the vantage point of the window by the stand-in for JFK was an angle of declension of just slightly more than 17 degrees. Even more important, Connolly's back wound, a wound of entrance, also was directly on this same line of declension, slightly more than 17 degrees. There were changes in the bullet's trajectory after the bullet entered Conley, but not very much. The angle of declension through Connolly's body, including the grazing of his rib, the exit from his chest below his right nipple, the wound to his wrist, and the superficial entry into his left thigh was measured at 25 degrees. This could easily be explained by the yawing of the bullet upon hitting Connolly's back and the slight course change caused by the grazing of the rib. These technicalities are very detailed, but therein lies their power. Landis and his publishers would have us believe that someone else, firing from behind Connolly, but not firing from the sixth floor window, did two astonishing things, one of which was impossible. First, he, or she, must have fired almost, but not quite, simultaneously with Oswald, within half a second. Second, this second shooter, firing from a closed window, since no other depository windows were open, shot Connolly in his back, along a trajectory that lined up perfectly with Oswald's, even though a trajectory line declension is always unique to the origin and destination points chosen, in this case the sixth floor window and the position of Kennedy and Connolly during the period they were blocked from Abraham Zapruder's view by a highway sign, frame Z210. The points of Connolly's entry wound would have been in different places than we know they were if he was shot from a window or place other than the sixth-floor window of the Texas School Book Depository. But there is one other logical impossibility with this scenario. 
Where did the bullet go after it exited Conley? Or did it pop out of his back, too, after tearing through his chest, shattering his wrist, and barely penetrating his thigh? Even if it did, which was impossible, it should have been found in the car behind Conley. Obviously, the bullet, in whole or part, would have been found in the car unless it dropped out of Connolly's body in Parkland Hospital when he was writhing on a stretcher, as the theory long has been. But Landis now claims the stretcher bullet as his own, the one that struck Kennedy in the back and went no further. So where did the alleged separate bullet that hit Connolly go? The only magic bullets in the last 60 years are those produced by conspiracists. In each case, they severely injure bodies, but then magically disappear. There are other problems. Kennedy was seen in the Zapruder film raising his arms in a locked position in front of his own throat after being shot by the bullet Landis claims popped out. But this was a Thorburn position, a reaction to a spinal injury caused by a bullet that passed by the spinal cord at such a speed as to damage it by the shock waves. A bullet that exited JFK's throat at 400 feet per second would explain that. A bullet that barely injured the president could not have impacted the spinal cord. Kennedy's windpipe would not have been penetrated and he could have emitted a cry, which he did not. Although Connolly began reacting to his wound about one-half second after JFK's reaction, the latter's was instantaneous because it was a spinal reaction, unmediated by pain. Connolly's required the time pain takes to register an assault on his body. A half-second of delay between the two men's reactions would suggest that both men were struck by the same bullet. Such a bullet could not have subsequently sprung back from Connolly's thigh backward to a wedged position in Kennedy's seat behind Connolly. In the end, there may be more contemporaneous reasons for doubting Landis. For almost everyone, Memory fades with time. Landis was willing to give interviews with the Sixth Floor Museum in 2010, and he provided useful information to the investigative journalist Max Holland in 2007. At that time, Landis said that he heard a first shot soon after the car rounded Houston Street onto Elm. Not far from Houston Street, he said. Landis said the same thing on November 30, 1963, eight days after the assassination, in a seven-page single-space report. This would have been as much as five seconds before the shot he now claims to be the first one that he heard. It also represented the first of three shots he was to recall to the Sixth Floor Museum. Landis's recollections in 1963 and 2007 about the first shot and in 2010, concerning the number of shots he heard, which run counter to what he now writes, align exactly with the memories of ear witnesses to the first shot, including his own contemporaneous account. In 1963, 
Landis remembered only two shots. I suspect he went back to his lengthy U.S. Secret Service summary to decide what he must remember now. But at that time, he was in a minority of the ear witnesses on this point. It is more logical to credit memories that are confirmed by others than those that are not, and especially memories closer in time to the event in question. It is also curious that Landis professes to have been ignorant all these years about the single bullet theory, one of the most discussed of all the assassination controversies. It consumes many minutes of Oliver Stone's mythical fever dream of a film, JFK. Stone's portraiture of the magic bullet entered the popular culture in reviews, essays, books, and even as a meme in a Seinfeld episode. Even if Landis, still traumatized by the assassination in the early 1990s, had not seen Stone's film, it beggars belief that he could have been unaware of the single bullet theory and its importance to the assassination. Why wouldn't he speak out then? If he intended to lay low, hide, or bury his knowledge, why was he willing to speak to investigators and interviewers in the 2000s about the assassination? How could he have forgotten about what he did and its subsequent importance? And how could he have remembered it if he had buried it from consciousness at just the time he decided to write a book about it? These questions should surely be addressed at length by Landis in his book, if he had buried the memory due to trauma and suddenly recovered it for no self-evident reason. If his new book does not address these questions, the Kennedy assassination has finally found a true magic bullet, the one in Paul Landis' book. Unlike the previous one of conspiracy lore, this one was evidently even more magical, for it inflicted JFK's first injury that day without even existing. This is Rick Ryman for Audibly Speaking. Thanks for listening.